Hello there, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show where we discuss big questions that pop up as we're reading through the Bible. We also discuss some of your questions that you send to us, that you pop in the comment section, that you email us. If this is your first time here, my name is Corey, and I'm joined by my husband, Matlock, today. Hey, Matlock. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. Good. So what area of scripture? So today we're reading, or not reading, we're discussing the questions that we should have read, which revolves around Ezra uh, 5 to Esther 10. Right. So our right. big question of right. this show is going to be about whether or not Israel is still God's chosen people. But right. some of the smaller, the the more scaled down questions that we're going to be asking have to do with the specifics of the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. Also, some hard-hitting questions in Esther. If Esther should be a book of the Bible, why isn't God ever mentioned? Things of that nature. So we're going to get into some of the weeds of the scripture sure. here. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll open up. Sure. I'll hit you with one. Okay. Yeah. So Bible question. Okay. Why did only some of the Israelites return to Jerusalem? Right. Okay. So in the book of Ezra, we're seeing um, it's after the 70 years of exile the, the member of Babylon had come into Judah. It had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and taken a bunch of people exile. There was actually three waves of exile to Babylon. Now it's been 70 years. And Ezra, you know, in the book of Ezra, we're talking about um, Cyrus, king of Persia, allowing um, some of the Judeans to go back to Jerusalem. And he's actually given a royal command to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, uh, but not everyone went, and apparently not everyone wanted to go. We see this as a theme throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where it was hard to get people to want to go back to Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, you know, when we see Ezra 1 verse 5 says, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites Everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So God moved on the hearts of certain people to go. Why would he have to do that? Other than the fact that he had called some people specifically for a task. When you think about it, they had been there for 70 years. And the prophet Jeremiah, who was prophesying at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem at the temple, he sent a letter to the exiles in Babylon that essentially said, you're here for for more than a generation. Settle in, plant vineyards, build houses, incorporate yourself, work for the good of these cities because you're going to be here for a while. And um, the archaeological evidence plays that out. There's been several uh, hordes of letters uh, and business contracts that have been found uh, from uh, Judean exiles in Babylon. And, and we see there was even a town um, that was called New New Jerusalem, New Judah, something like that. New Judah, I think. Um, people had invested in, in the land where they were exiled, in the empire of Babylon. They had planted farms. They had planted vineyards. They had established businesses and families. There was a new generation of Israelites that had been born and Judeans that had been born, that this was the home that they knew. So the concept of unplanting your family and moving them across the world, essentially. I know it wasn't geographically across the world, but it would have felt that way. And having to reestablish, build a new city from nothing was not only uncomfortable and expensive, but quite dangerous 
because you have to time it just right so that you don't run out of food, so that you can plant vineyards and, and farms and crops in time to survive. So this was a really um, serious undertaking. So it makes I think it makes a lot of good human sense why people would, would not have wanted to unplant everything and restart from scratch in a right. new land, even though it was the land of their birth. Some people definitely wanted to. Some people did not want to. And we see that not just here in the beginning of Ezra, but again, it's a theme throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah where you see people not wanting uh, to go back and having really to be coerced to go back or told specifically, you are going back. Right. Like uh, picked by lots, I think, in, in, right. in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is very frustrated and he picks people by lots and he shames them. Shame on you for not wanting to go back. <laughs> but it makes sense why they wouldn't want to go back. Right. They had a whole lives established, right? They just want to yep. keep living their lives. Yeah. And no, some no. people did very well. Right. Very, very well in right. the Babylonia. And we so. see even later on that, the, that Israel is scattered. Yep. Right. And so, and that scattered actually plays a role in them, in them returning, you know, in the New Testament, mm -hmm. their return to Christ and all these things, mm -hmm. their return to God. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about and the, and, the, and the concept that God chose a remnant to come back. Yes. Um, whether it was by, you know, some he had placed it on their hearts and they felt called to go back right. to Jerusalem and others, they had to literally be chosen by lot that remnant is always very interesting it's always it, it's this... going to be a theme that recurs yes. it's a theme that recurs in the old testament and in the new yes mm -hmm. consistently that's consistently. cool consistently okay, okay i have a question for you sure uh from ezra 9 to 10 it's a bible question why did the israelites have to divorce their foreign wives and abandon their children from these marriages if divorce was and still is prohibited Right. Well, so, I think yeah. this comes down to a priority structure. So for one, I'll answer the question directly, not necessarily the moral the moral aspects of the question, mm -hmm. but why did they get divorced? Well, they were idolatrous. In other words, they were serving other gods and, and teaching their children about other gods. So the plan was either the wives and the children start worshiping God mm -hmm. or you have to divorce your wife, basically, and your children. Like that was the, kind of the plan. Because as they're establishing Israel again, they wanted to have purity in their culture and in their religion. They didn't want to mix things because when they mixed everything together, when they had that pluralism of uh, religious devotees, you essentially got destroyed. They got destroyed and they became, you know, they had to be exiled. So they didn't want that to happen again, fair enough. Um, so that's part of it, is that the, the wives and the children didn't have to be left or divorced. So long as they became part of the, uh, I don't want to say Christian religion, but Judaism, as long as they became part of underneath God and they worship God. And that's important because if you're looking at this from like a naturalistic lens, like, oh, it's just one religion, another religion. Like, what, like, why would they force that? It, it really misses the whole point. And it's, the point is that God is good. God is true. God is love. God is, you know, the essence of what's goodness is. God cannot lie. Whereas other religions are false, idolatry. They lead to evil and they love death. And these, so it's, it's a night and day distinction, um, between the two. And so what God wants to do is worship what's right, what's love, what's good. Those are the elements that's being said. And to reject that, I think, is what, um, the 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 women and children who were being divorced from. Now, uh, granted, this is once again, it's something that that they can do. It's not like you had to divorce if they if they worship God, then there's no issue. If they abandon their their religion and idolatry, then there's no issue at all. Um, so that would be just like the direct answer. Do you have anything to add into that? 
Yeah, I mean, when you when you're reading it here in Ezra nine and ten, it is very brutal. But they were living in a very brutal time. Right. So, I mean, this this was about following the commands of God as a remnant of the Israel that had fallen. It, right. Israel, and you pointed to, you you mentioned this, but I don't think it could be emphasized enough. Because it's given as the reason, as the impetus behind this decision of sending away the foreign wives and children. Right. Um, and that is that Israel fell as a nation because of this. Because David took foreign wives, but less so David, more so Solomon. And that I... Because Solomon not only accepted foreign wives, but he allowed and participated in and taught Israel to participate in idolatry against God. Right. And so the very thing that God had said to Israel would happen, happened. God said, don't intermarry with the people of the land because you will become like them. You will start worshiping their foreign gods. Well... Solomon did exactly that. He married into them. He he accepted these peace treaties with them and was building pagan temples in God's land that was supposed to be cleared of pagan temples to become holy space. It was supposed to become like a mini Eden where God's presence could meet with his people. But instead, it was completely polluted with idolatrous practices. And it was very important for Israel not to become polluted with idolatrous practices because the Messiah, God's plan of redemption for all humanity, not just Israel, was supposed to come through the Israelite bloodline and also through to the actual Holy Land. It was supposed to remain holy, and it didn't. And so Israel had been destroyed as the 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 covenant that we see in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the covenant that was laid out by God and arbitrated by Moses, it had already laid out that it would Israel would be destroyed, and the temple would be destroyed if they did this. It was it was destroyed, and the people went into exile for seventy years because of this judgment. Now God had called not all of Israel back, but just a small remnant of Israel back to start again. And immediately they begin this sin again, not marrying people who had, this wasn't a race issue. This was a religion issue. Mm. They needed to keep the worship of God at the center of their world. Notice when they got called back to Jerusalem, it wasn't to rebuild Judah. It wasn't even to rebuild Israel. It was to rebuild what? The temple. Because the worship of God had to be the main priority. And immediately they come back and they start intermarrying with women who were worshiping pagan gods and idols and teaching their children to do the same. So immediately they were engaging in the sin that caused the destruction of the temple that they were supposed to be rebuilding. So this is a very harsh act when they were they were to put away their wives and children. And, and it's brutal, and I don't think there's a way around that. Right. But it was brutal because if they didn't do it, the temple was again doomed to be destroyed. Right. And and um, so 
by them doing this, this was them rededicating themselves right. to God. Now, I think it's a different, I, I think, I think this is a matter of priority. So yes. can something still be wrong, but need to happen? And I think the answer here is yes. Like a necessary evil? It's a necessary well, evil. It was absolutely a, a born out of sin right. that these men put away their women and children. This is not an ideal situation. This is sinful. This is bad. Because they didn't raise their family, their children right. It's like it's kind of like on them. It's, it's, it's definitely not like, on it's them. It's not like the husband would be like, oh, well, like it doesn't matter. Like This would be like a terrible thing. But it is a horrible thing. Right. But what is what are they pr- choosing to prioritize here? They are choosing to prioritize God's redemptive plan for humanity through the temple of Jerusalem. Right. And and to add to this whole thing, because part of the, the other edge of this is b- why could he do this? Because it's prohibited. And it's, once again, that priority thing where it's like a true a marriage is under God. Yeah. And if it's not under God, well, it's not it's not a full marriage. It's incomplete. Yes. Because you might have a legal marriage, but it might not be complete because God's not unifying the two together. Yeah. So, go ahead. Well, and also divorce wasn't fully prohibited under the Mosaic law. Right. There, there, certain there, there were certain circumstances where it was permitted. Right. And and I and I do believe the same today. We do have a different reason for Christian marriage today. Yes. We are not building a physical temple or a physical land of Israel. We 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 don't have that. That's not our inheritance. But what we are doing is building the kingdom of God, building the kingdom of heaven spiritually. Right. Um, and 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 even through our families. So, but but there is a different priority structure now. And Jesus's teaching on divorce is is about honoring God and about honoring your covenants um, and getting back to now that we have the second Adam who has redeemed us and has given us forgiveness for our sins. We're no longer under the law, and and we are now really essentially attempting to get back to God's original plan for right. marriage. So the different priority structure and, now. Exactly. And even to add to this, so uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, I was just thinking about it. I popped it up here. Mm-hmm. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Mm-hmm. In such cases, the brother or sister, the Christian, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And, and you think about that statement here in, in light of that. And essentially, like, if someone's not willing to serve God and they just leave, well... You know, you obviously want them to serve God. That's your, that's part of the goal mm-hmm. of everyone's life. You want everyone to serve worship God right? because that will make things good. That'll make things holy. That'll make everyone uh, be l- truly loving in a way that no one, that's indescribable. Um, but the the level of de- the marriage there isn't comp- like it's sanctified. Paul calls it their children are holy. It's sanctified, but it's still incomplete mm-hmm. because the husband, the unbelieving husband, the unbelieving wife does not believe in God or, you know, they don't believe in his character. They don't, you know, they don't trust him. They have no faith. So it's like they leave, and then Paul's like, "Well, just let it be so. We're called to peace." So you know, this factors in here because, especially in that discussion, these people, God is the foundation of a marriage, right? From which we can love each other fully. Mm-hmm. So you know, you love God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, so that you can love your neighbor like it. You can love your spouse like that. Mm-hmm. That's the principle. It's not like. Oh, God is God's love is working through us to love all people fully. Mm-hmm. As as you can love someone as fully as you can possibly love someone. So that's important. It's not like um you need God in the picture. Otherwise, the marriage is just incomplete. So at the same time, it's like why a wife would uh and the children would abandon their father 
for the idols is a whole other thing because they, of course, have a choice in that respect. Mm-hmm. Right? They can choose, oh, I'll, fo- I'll follow, I'll worship God. But if they're choosing that, that's a different story. Like that's a, that's. Yeah, you know, and I mean, right? when you think about it hu- from, from a human perspective, I mean, many, many of, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were left out on their own to fend for themselves. They, many of them probably had homes to go back to. Right. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot that we don't know in this, but what we do know is what the Bible is choosing to tell us, which is it's choosing to prioritize following the law of God because these are the remnant that has returned. And if they did not follow the law explicitly, especially at this foundational moment, that God, Ezra even says, would not would not God destroy this remnant right. and completely start again. Right. Like he's already destroyed our nation. He's brought us back. He's called us back. And here at this foundational level, we're going to fail again. Right. He's going to destroy so, us. And, and then, then there's and then no go, one going to be another left. Thing. So the father's also thinking about self-preservation of his family. Mm-hmm. So you either get with his, you either worship God, or if you don't, we, we're going to get destroyed again. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you have that in mind. Mm-hmm. So it's like, to me, the onus isn't really on completely the father. If the, the the wives and the children worship God, there's no issue. Mm-hmm. It's not an issue at all. Mm-hmm. And again, it's foundational. It's the essence of what it means to be good. Yeah, and so we have, I mean, we've got like the classic examples of foreign women who abandoned their gods and declared the God of Israel to be their gods and were married into very prominent Ruth. lines. Yeah, the whole book. and the reason yeah. we have Ruth's story preserved for us is because her great great grandson was King David. That's right. And so this was brought out. Yeah, it's right? not a racist. I'm thing. so like, glad that she was, so that we can right. understand. We can understand how this was yes. seen and understood, and and I mean Rahab as right. well. Of course, right? I, I married think in. You touched on something because it's definitely not when it says foreign. People are like, oh, how could they ban someone just because they're foreign? It's not so that. It's not it's because the, it's foreign it's the, at all. It's yeah. religion. Yeah. It's their religious it's practices. Rel- it's not racial or ethnic It's priorities. a sin issue. It's a sin issue. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think, that's, I think that kind of nails it. Okay. So next question then. We're going to move sure. on to Esther. Okay. So uh, I know we're skipping over Nehemiah, but we've got questions about Esther. So the first sure. question about Esther is one that people bring up all the time. And there's some people who argue even that Esther shouldn't be a book of the Bible because of this, which is wild to me. I know there's a few other reasons. Don't skewer me in the comments. I know there's other reasons. But one of the main reasons or one of the things that people bring up a lot is that nowhere in the book of Esther is God mentioned by name. Right. Uh, So why, Matlock, does the book of Esther not mention God? Okay. Um, I don't know why specifically, but here's what I can say. God is clearly in the background, orchestrating the whole situation. So while the word God or Yahweh is not mentioned specifically, God's orchestrating the whole event. In fact, they even humble themselves and pray when they find out that- They fast. They fast when when Haman says he wants to kill them. So God's clearly there. But I think what's really interesting here too is, is that the fact that God's name is not mentioned actually really highlights kind of how God works in reality a little bit. Because um, what the emphasis of this text is showing is that how a culture that has been exiled, right, humbles themselves and how other people are trying to destroy the people of God and how God 
orchestrates through them, through the people themselves, through their own actions, their redemption. So it's not just God's, oh, God's not mentioned, therefore he's not there. God's literally working through the people, using their actions and bringing it out to good. And you notice these parallels through irony, divine irony, some will call it. And you notice the same type of irony that you can read in the book of Judges um, is the same type of irony that you can read here. So for instance, let me pull this up. Um, In Esther 6 and 5 and 6, okay, Haman... Uh, went out that day joyful and glad in heart because he basically couldn't wait to kill Mordecai and all the Jews. He was just, oh, he's really happy, okay? Really happy about it. And then uh, that night, you know, the king is talking about how he's going to he's gonna honor uh, Haman and he's going to give him some so much stuff. But then that night, the king hears about Mordecai and what he did to save the king. So then as Haman goes out uh, the, to see the king, the king's like, look, I need to give this guy robes and jewels and give him a parade. Haman the whole time is like, yeah, that's me. And then it finds out that, no, it's actually Mordecai. And the king's honoring Mordecai. And Haman has to put dress him in a robe. And Haman has to put on all these jewels and and and, and completely elevate Mordecai, even though Haman wants to kill Mordecai. So completely against his will. So you have this irony factor. And because moments before, all of Israel repented and they were fasting as we were just talking about right so you know when you humble yourselves god elevates you is is the principle there so you have these um uh lawful and uh prophetic uh, principles within esther that's being applied you know they they humble themselves and god elevates them as i just said so and and i said about the irony so and i think that ironic elements that god uses there they're, they're so indicated, you know, you have Haman's hypocrisy is being used against him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is indicative of God's judgment uh, and also God's mercy in a way. Um, so those ironic elements, which are just two opposing ideas or parallel or perpendicular ideas being used to draw out a uh, conclusion. Um, something, you know, that it shows you about how God works in reality. Because even though we don't see God physically, right? He's, he's invisible in the text. He's not mentioned, but he's completely visible throughout how he's orchestrating everything. Um, so, And that's how God works in reality. You can see ironic elements and narrative happen in real life. Mm-hmm. And you can see that happen to people when people will say things and they'll, they'll make it their life mission to do something. And then they'll actually, you know, and then that actually ends up biting them and make, make, bringing them to ruin. And, like, you know, think about the fictional story, uh, Ahab, Captain Ahab. He wants to kill the white whale, but he gets eaten by the white whale. Um, and those things aren't just, you know, fictitious principles. They happen in reality. And I think that is how God orchestrates and tells us things. Uh, through irony and through those narrative principles that you can see. And so the, the book of Esther really helps us see how God works, you know, in real life. Uh, you know, he's invisible, he's in the background, but he's actually imminent and always there. Mm-hmm. So I think it actually, when you're really pressing the text, uh, God's not, it's, it's clearly canon. Um, it's just yeah, he's not, not seen in a different way. He's not absent, but also consider, so so the book of Esther is masterfully written. Yes. Right? It, it um, The pacing is really good. The timing is really good. It builds up. So this is a story that has been written down very carefully. And, and really to display the irony of evil and how evil ends up murdering itself um, and, and, and how God is moving and acting. But 
when you think about this timing, right? Esther is living in the Persian Empire. She is still, she's a part of Israel that had not been called back to Jerusalem, at least as of yet. So they're still effectively living, even if they're choosing to live, in the Persian exile at this point. It was the Babylonian exile, now now it's the, the, the kingdom of Persia. So perhaps the name of God isn't used in the book of Esther as a stylistic choice because these are Judeans, these are Israelites living in exile from God still. Right. As the people who were once God's people, they're still God's people, but they're living in exile. So they're living in, essentially, they're living under the punishment of God, exiled from the promised land. Right. And then it kind of deals with this question, well, has God full scale abandoned his people then? Or is he still active in their lives? Is he still working? Right. So I think this could be explained as a stylistic choice because these people are God's people living outside of the promised land still in the exile. And yet we still see God moving on their behalf to preserve their lives. Right. So I think this may be a stylistic it's choice. It's completely from intentional, the right? Very yeah, intentional. It's very They're living in exile away from the land of God, away from the temple of God, living in very pagan situations. Right. Right. This is a very they pagan thing. They feel away from the name of God, but in actuality, he's not. Because mm-hmm. remember, that name he's is still there he's, and he's still present and he's still preserving. Exactly. And I, to, to add to this, um, to kind of go back a little bit, an interesting note to add to this irony in real life, okay? Speaking of irony, like, like the book of Esther, what makes it so interesting is that it's strictly Jewish. And um, there was a news report I read that happened in 1946. And I'm just going to, you guys can look this up if you want to. But what happened was uh, the Nazi generals were about to be executed after Nuremberg trials discovered what they were doing, right? And there were 10 Nazis. Uh, one of them was General Stryker. And they were lined up by the gallows. And um, and typically at this time, you you execute by firing squad, not by uh, hanging. And as General Stryker, who we all know, is about to be hung, he says, Purim 1946. Okay. And I don't know if you guys know what Purim is. Purim is the, belongs to the Day of Atonement, which is this book's always read at the Day of Atonement, um, uh, which is the forgiveness of sins. And we all know what the, that means. But... What's really interesting is Esther specifically had to deal with the the Day of Atonement. So then, you know, the 10 uh, uh, Nazis are hung on the gallows. What's really interesting about that, okay, first of all, it was Purim at the time, okay, when um, the Nazis were being hung. It was Purim. And the Book of Esther is what Mm -hmm. the the Feast of Purim is about, okay? So General Stryker, in his very last, last words, connects these dots but what's really ironic is that the 10 nazis who are lining up Haman has 10 children who also in this text are being hung by the gallows so and what was you know and obviously what was the holocaust about the holocaust was about destroying the jews and Haman was about destroying the jews so you have this real irony that happens in real life that's related to this text and you see something like that and you're like like that can't be like 
the guy's last words before he died were Purim 1946. Mm-hmm. Like that's qu- like that's quite the divine revelation to have before you get hung. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, so it's it's remarkable things like that that you see in narrative. In, in, in something you think that sounds fictional because it's ironic, but then you see it happen in real life. And you have to ask yourself, well, God moves in those ways. And and um, I, I don't think we should dismiss narrative as part of seeing how God moves in reality. Well, he knows how to, he knows how to communicate to humans, That's to right. people. And one of the ways to communicate is through narrative. It's through That's right. irony. It's through story. Right. Story is real. A story can be fake, and story can be real, right? right? Real stories and and parables as well. It's very it's cool. interesting. It is cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. All right, I got a question for you then. Okay. I mean, that's good for there. Uh, in regards to Esther two, did Esther sleep with King Xerxes before she married him? Okay. This-, <laughs> this is this is like I guess it's a moral conundrum. But go ahead. Yes. Right. Okay. This question always makes me laugh. I know people generally, I know, I know there's real struggle that comes with this question, but it makes me laugh because we're reading our cultural context back into the time period of Esther, right? So of course the Christian teaching, of course the, when when you look, when you go back and you look at the biblical plan for marriage, it's a covenant between a man and a woman. And that is where sexual expression is, is good is when there is a covenant between a man and a woman and God, God being a key factor there, that is where sexual expression is good. And in Christianity, in, in, in orthodoxy, in what is true, that is the only time when, um, full sexual expression is acceptable and right and holy. Okay. So, but we are reading that into the time of Esther because marriage today, in our cultural expression, there is um, a ceremony. And that ceremony and that covenant ceremony is what binds the man and woman together before they consummate their marriage. In the ancient world, not so much, right? There was a contract between families generally, and then there was a consummation of the marriage. In the time period of, in, in Esther's circumstance specifically, the parental consent for Esther to be married to Xerxes, if that's what you can call it. I don't even think you can really call it married. I, um, because she, she may, the, the result of that may not have been her position as wife in the court. It may have ended up her position as concubine. Different story. A little bit, a little bit of a different story. But the contractual consent would have been given by Mordecai so that she could have been a part of this beauty pageant, I guess, if you will, that that of all these women joining the harem of King Xerxes. So you can't really, it's, it's not marriage in the same kind of concept as we have it today. But I would say no, Esther's consummation with the king, her sleeping with the king, that was just part of the contractual, not even a written contract, I doubt. It, I mean, there may have been a written consent form that Mordecai would have had to give, but it more so was like, yep, here you go. Here she is. She can she can be part of this. And in that culture, it would have been seen as an honor because truthfully, marriage was about children right. and it was about sustenance. 
providing a life for the woman as well. Uh, because in that culture, women couldn't work in the same way. Women could work. They could own fields. They could do things. But legal transactions, unless you were very wealthy, legal transactions were wielded by men. That's just the way the ancient world worked. So Esther or any woman being included in the royal harem, they would have had life made in terms of food and clothing till the day they died would have been provided for them unless they did something foolish like 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 Vashti and, and went against the kings and the king and his wish and made him mad with them, then they could potentially lose, you know, their their provision. But maybe not even in that case. They they may still have been provided for depending on the contract that they had with the king. But Esther luckily did become a full legal wife. She became the queen of Xerxes. So I would say no, because it's not the same. It's not the same thing. Do, do, do you understand what I'm trying to kind yeah, of put up here? I think so. Because, but I think reading our morality back into it is faulty here because we're not dealing even with Israel. Well, we're not, dealing with ancient. You could Persia. say that it's not right, but you could say like you can't judge Esther for this. Is year. this but the thought, ideal marriage? No. No, but so let's just read it quickly. So Esther 2, verses 13 to 14. When the young woman went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Yeah. So I guess all the other women would probably become concubines. If yeah, they, right. but that's still contractually, contractually, yes. they they were like we would say married. Right. Like the the king provided for them a place to live, clothing, food, right. and luxuries, and they slept with well, the king. Okay. Right. So like, it, and they bore his children. Right. So. Our concept of marriage is a little bit different. It's completely different. Well, because because put it this like way too. Our concept of marriage. I was thinking about this the other day because even the kinsman redeemer, okay, mm-hmm. would have a wife and kids, and if his brother died, would have to sleep with his brother's wife, widow, widow, yeah. to produce children, to produce a child, a e- child, a, a child, a child. Yeah. Even though he's currently married, so the concept here is that sexuality is is bound within a marriage. But in certain circumstances, right? To say it's not quite as um, because what was flushed being, out and clean cut because, as we have right, it today. Because what was being prioritized prioritized was the life of the woman, the life of the widow. Yes, who was childless. It wasn't just any widow. Right. If a widow died with a child, like if 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 she was widowed and they had a child, she's fine. Yes, right. Because the child could inherit the father's land in Israel. Exactly. So what was being prioritized was the land of Israel right? because this was supposed to be a holy nation, <laughs> right? Right. This was the kingdom of God right. before the spiritual kingdom of God. There was a physical kingdom of God and then a spiritual kingdom of God. So Leverite marriage or brother marriage was a very specific moment in time, right? Where what was being prioritized was the inheritance of the land of Israel specifically and individually, the life of that woman, right. so that she would then be she would be provided for immediately. A family couldn't just be like, "Well, 
our brother died. You're kind of on your own. Sorry. And right. she might starve or turn or just to taking care of or her. turn to prostitution. Right. So she was immediately physically provided for. And then a child would be once she had that child, that right. child then would inherit the land and would inherit all of the father's wealth so that right. he, that the woman would be provided for. All I was for. just trying to say is... But right. like now, that's not a thing because we're not prioritizing. We don't have a physical land. That's not the kingdom that we're building. Right. But it's just a completely different way of looking at the world, too. Because yes. if, if that's the way you're thinking, that's a very legally regimented system that you're feeding into. But keep in mind... Esther wasn't even in Israel. No, I know. I'm just she trying, was in Persia. I'm just trying to highlight other ancient examples right. of how it's so radically different but the way we think about marriage. in her context, yeah. she was married to the king if you see marriage as a right. covenant between a man and a woman. Now, right. this is not the biblical ideal because it's not man and woman and God. Right. And it's not one man, one woman. It's one man, whoever knows how many women. Right. Right. But there was um, an agreement right. between all of these women and their families and the king is that by becoming a concubine, by, by becoming a concubine or a wife, full wife, that this was just the legal status of the king, there was contractual obligations. Right. The concubines would bear the children of the king. The king would take care of every need of the concubine right. in terms of phys- physically. Right. Right? So, yes, but also no. Right. Not the way we see marriage, not biblically ideal marriage, but there, right. was, a, there was a contract right. that she was in, entering in that was already there before she slept right. with the king. Right. Good. I think that works. Yeah, because she I, was like in six six months or nine months. I can't remember. I've or read a full a lot year. Of, Why is it escaping me? Of right. beauty treatments. She was already living in the harem. Right. Under contractual obligation they knew, before she slept with the And king. they knew that this was coming. So it's not like it would be like, oh, like it's going to happen now. Right. I know because I've read some people be like, oh, of course she did. She just did it. And it's the way it is. I've read people just say that. But she was under contractual but, obligation. And, like if she was if this, she was going through beauty treatments, hold on. If yeah. she was going through beauty treatments in the harem of the king and yes. she slept with someone else, that would have been very bad yeah. she, because she was already under the contractual obligation of their form of right. marriage. Well, that's right. So that's but For like nine months to right. a year before I think she slept with the king. What I'm saying is, I think the <laughs> historical con- for these kind of questions, yeah. it's a historical question. It's yeah. not a biblical question. Because sure. because you need, okay, well, was there a contract? Was, like, was it under God? Like, the, we the, cannot the, justify in our culture, we cannot justify sex before marriage based off of this. Okay, right. But e- so there's two elements <laughs> If that's to take what we're away. trying to do. There's two elements to take away. A, one, morally, yeah. it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Two, um, uh, the question really lends itself to being like, do you have a historical knowledge of this culture? Sure. And that's important because the contracts, different things. Like if you didn't know, like if you just read the Bible, Esther, you'd be like, she totally did it before she married him. Right? It's like, well, you have a misunderstanding of the culture. Right. And we I can't think, even say that it was an initiatory act because there was definitely a, a contractual well, obligation well, before you could see the that. fact. Exactly. So that's, yeah. well, that's what I'm saying. But the word contract's not even mentioned. So It's implied. Well, yeah. I, well that's what I'm saying. It's implied because she's going through, the king is paying for all of her beauty treatments. It, she can't just walk no, away and uh, but here's what I'm get saying. married to someone else at that point. She's here's, already under the obligation. I, all I'm trying to say is, is that, yes, you're right. Yeah. But it's important because so many, I've read people be like, oh, she totally did it before she got married because they're just assuming 
Right. That there's, there's the word contract's not of, mentioned. They're kind of assuming our culture on top of that's it. That's exactly yeah. right. And that's a real problem because it's like, th- th- but okay, this shows you, like, when you have those kind of questions, yeah. well, it requires those kind of answers, well, because, which are historical Okay, cultural. so even, even when you're thinking like Mary and Joseph, if you take that example where sure. Mary was found to be with child before she married Joseph, he had to divorce her. Right. In his mind, he had to divorce her. It's called put away, right? He had to put her away. He wanted to do it quietly. Because it was a get like she she could have been right. really Stoned in trouble whatever, yeah. un, under the law under the law. Most of you want to do it quietly, right? But he had to he had to prepare. He would have had to prepare a contract of divorce for that because even in their time period of engagement, they were under a contractual obligation. Right. So they weren't consummating their marriage physically, but they were betrothed. They were as good as married in terms of any. Anything at that point can be a breach of the contract. Right. Right? We don't think of it like that today. No. But that's the way it was. And we, right. can, we can even see that where, okay, well, Joseph had to give a certificate of a, a divorce. Right. He had to put her away officially, but they hadn't consummated their marriage yet. Right, right, right. Their, their marriage feast hadn't come, anything like that. But right. yes, this, this idea of contracts and, and being very serious about it before the fact used to it's be like a you thing. have fiancés just to be off the hook just in case or something. So yeah. Well, it kind of it's like way, an excuse then. Yeah. We're an excuse then to, yeah, if, in our culture, we're like, oh yeah, we're, if she's we can a live fiance, together. We're, we're going to get married. The, nah. yeah, the concept would be if she was a fiancé, she would be married as opposed to fiancé, right. well, I, I'm One not day. married yet, so maybe I won't do it. It's like, well, that's not the point of being a fiancé. The point yeah. is you're preparing to get married. So I think that also is another way to think about it. All right. Yeah. All right. I think that's Okay, so that. let's move on to the big question then. Sure. And this is a doozy, and, and I don't even think we're going to have time to really unpack sure. all of it, but maybe we can just talk about it a little bit. Um, the big question, is Israel still God's chosen people? I mean, we've seen Ezra, we've seen the exile happened and then the the remnant of Israel return. We've seen in Esther how God still interacted with, loved, prioritized, however you want to say it, the people who were still living, the Israelites who were still living in the in in Persia right. after the remnant had come back. So today then, right. we know that you know, by and large, most Israelites did not accept and still do not accept Christ right. as and the, son the Son of God. And if you reject the you reject the Father. So the first what's time. going on? Okay, here? so is Israel still God's chosen he, people? Okay, so here's two things to keep in mind. There's yeah. obviously there's the physical and the spiritual, right? So let me just read. Uh, I'll go to Romans. Paul talks about this. Romans nine, Romans eleven. Mm-hmm. Start at Romans nine, verses six to eight. Uh, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Okay, so not all Israel is Israel. Mm-hmm. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but the but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Okay, for one, right there, the children of the promise are the God's spiritual people, those who have faith. Right, in, in, uh, in God and prioritize God. You're not just God's people. It's just simply because you know, you know you're circumcised or you're you're physically Israel. And then Paul says later on in uh, later on in uh, Romans 11, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people, whom He foreknew. 
Do you not know what scripture says, Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And then it goes on to say, but if it is by grace, it is no longer by the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Okay. So here you have it said right there. There's a remnant of Israel who is Israel, and there are many Israel who do not belong to Israel. So that's what Paul's making very clear. Yep. Paul's making very clear. It's not, you're not just, you know, uh, children of God because, you know, you're a descendant of Abraham. It's because you have faith. You're the spiritual descendant in the sense that, uh, you, you know, you believed unto God and has counted to you as righteousness. Um, and I think that when we have these discussions, because there are a lot of people who say, oh, Israel is God's chosen people, um, as if we're not God's chosen people, and we've been grafted onto Israel. Uh, and, you know, it does say this later, but what we've been grafted onto is not Israel as a whole, it's the faithfulness of Israel. Mm-hmm. So those who have faith in, in God, who then have faith in Christ, Right, um, we've been grafted onto that, onto the prophets. Well, right? as so, much as as much as Christ is the branch of David, the shoot of David, right, right, that the 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 stump of David, right, Christ is the branch of David that the prophets speak of, that that Isaiah speaks of. So we've got this tree that we are grafted onto, yes. and there is there are you know, biological Israelites and there are biological many nations <laughs> grafted on. Because it says in tree. verse 20, they, they were broken off because of their unbelief, those yeah. who were unfaithful. Yeah. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Anyways, in other words, you'll be you'll be knocked off too. But the point is we've been grafted on, if, you know, if Christ is the vine and we're the branches, uh, this concept is that by faith we've been grafted on, not to Israel, all of Israel, but to the faithful who belong to Israel, because before Israel was Abraham, because Jacob's Israel, before Abraham, mm-hmm. right, was Adam. So you have this idea that we're all supposed to be supposed to be God's children, but those who are God's children are grafted in by faith, which then worked through the Israelite nation, right? And only but retained to the belonged, but it only belonged to those who had faith in Jesus Christ, who had faith in who truly had faith in God. Mm-hmm. Um and didn't just, you know, do works and it just, oh, I'm just going to do this just because and it doesn't matter. They had a heartfelt relationship and desire to seek after God in all things, through all things. So I think that factors into this discussion um, because we're all children of God if we belong to Christ. Um, but it's not to look at it as though there's, the other edge to this discussion is to look at that there's two different ways of salvation. You can be a Jew. Or you could be Christian. And, yeah. and that's a faulty way of looking at that's it. That's definitely false. Yeah. But I don't think that you can, I don't think that we can just wholesale say, well, then that means that that God doesn't have a plan for Israel. Yeah, that's true. Modern, but- day, mo- modern day Jews. I don't think you can say, well, they've been cut off and therefore that's it. God's right. done. They're, they're and- the same thing as... Let's say the the utmost evil heathens like the Nazis. They, they're not the same thing. Because Paul does say they're partially hardened. You're right. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, but but I, I but I think we've seen enough, even in modern history, we've seen enough of God. Uh, God is doing something really interesting and has done something really interesting. And there's a, there's a few different ways that people take the the remainder of Romans chapter eleven, where Paul says, "I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, right. so that you may not be conceited." Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number Partial of hardening. Gentiles right. has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. And then he goes into a doxology, which is really interesting. But there are a few different ways that people take that where they're like, okay, well, this is referring to, you know, the, the Christian church as Israel, or this is referring to the specific elect Jews who will have faith in God, or this is referring to Jews at the end of the, the time of the world before right. the new heavens and the new earth, God's going to do something special right. and, uh, and redeem a bunch of, uh, uh, Jews who come to faith in Christ. So there's several ways that this is interpreted. Yes. But I think that we do have to, we, we have to acknowledge on the one hand, salvation comes through Christ alone. Yes. The, the scriptures are very clear on that. Right. And on, on, in that same vein, we, I'm not going to sit here and tell God what he can or cannot do in redeeming the people of Israel, of course, yeah. you know, the, it, and, well, and, and yeah. Yeah. I, I think to add to your, your, what you're bringing up here, which is really important is that Paul's making the parallel to a tree. So we're at the beginning stages of us being grafted in, but mm -hmm. it's still growing. Mm -hmm. right? And at the very end, what will this tree look like? Paul saying it's a mystery that they might be grafted in again and how much more naturally would they be grafted in right into the natural branches. So in other words, like they have sands, the new Testament, the old Testament, Right, mm -hmm. Paul doesn't say they've been completely hardened. Paul says they've been partially hardened. Yeah, and obviously and, there is a remnant. I mean, he's a Jew. Right, <laughs> he was a Jew. So, right. and he even talks about there was a remnant then already, right. already. Right. And he talks about that if they do not persist, he he literally says, um, in verse twenty three of Romans eleven, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in for God is able to graft right. them in again. So the scripture is clear that salvation is through Christ, even for the Jews. It's right. not through the Mosaic law, which has been fulfilled by Christ and found its fulfillment, found its fullness right. in Christ. Um, but is God fully done and I, with biological right. descendants I, of Abraham? And I don't think that we can say, no, yeah, of course no, he's done. No, I don't think he I don't is. Think I, I think it makes it clear that, well, put it this way, Israel's still around. And I already gave the example earlier about um, how the Purim 1946. Yeah. It's like, that's God moving. You can't, like, that is God. Like, I, I don't know how you can read it any other way. All of it, right? But and then there's and then there's another side to this edge, the, the, this idea. I was reading um, uh, Dennis Prager, who's that famous um, uh, Jewish thinker and speaker at... Uh, uh, Prager U. At Prager U yeah. and other places, uh, 
Daily Wire Plus and stuff like that. Sure. Anyways, uh, he said something really interesting, and I haven't looked into it fully, but he said it. I'm just going to repeat it here. He said when the, when the Jews were going through the Holocaust, they actually ended up putting God on trial. And he's just trying to get you into the mindset of what it was to be like a modern Jew. And he said they put God on trial. And in this process, they gave him a lawyer. They had their lawyers, and they had a prosecution, all this stuff. And at the very end, the Jews found God guilty because they said, we have held our side of the bargain, or, or, not bargain, of our side of the covenant, and you didn't uphold yours. Then after they had that process, they said, okay, now let's go pray. And they went to go pray. Now, I don't know. That's wild to no, me. No, I, 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 you told me that, I think, last week or maybe the week. Yeah, I, I still haven't had time to think about that. That's wild. I know. So, I need to think about that. I know. So you, yeah, you can probably see it. It's 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 there. So, I mean, think about that. Okay, so we're putting God on trial like a human, mm-hmm. yet he comes in the flesh like a, as a human and you reject him. And so yeah. the, the irony there to hold him culpable, who is the essence of goodness of what you need. It's just, there's so much irony in that. So when we say a partial hardening, it's truly like a partial hardening because it's not a full hardening where they've completely gone apostate to the to the utmost extent where there's nothing intelligible about you know them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's like they read the Old Testament. They try their best to understand to make them wise in God. Yet there's things that are complete, like the forbidden chapter, Isaiah 53, there's things that are just missing there. Mm-hmm. And so that faith element is so important to truly understand what God wants from us. And, um, and so again, I contend that yes, Israel's Israel. There are a biological Israel we talked about because they're mm-hmm. both a religion mm-hmm. and a and a people group. They're both. So you're going to have to. There's two different Israels we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. This religion, uh, the Israelite of, of the faith, and the Israelite of of biological Israel you were talking about, who is retaining the old Jewish religion. Mm-hmm. So, at the same time, it has abandoned Christ. So. I don't know what that fully looks like. There, perhaps at the very end of time, we read in Daniel seven and Daniel nine that you know Israel sees what they have done and they repent, and Daniel is like in shock and awe about this. Um, and perhaps that is tying into what Paul's mystery is. Um, you know, at the fullness of time when the tree is fully grown, Israel realizes we've we've killed our Messiah and they repent and they return to Christ and they ask for redemption. And through this, all of Israel is saved. Perhaps right, this is God's domain. I, I don't like to go into the territory of who God will save and whom God won't, because that that breaches into into his territory a little bit. But I will say this, is that what Paul is talking about, that that there's this trunk and this tree of righteousness and of faith that is what we're grafted onto. And that's the important way to look at it. We're not grafted onto biological Israel. Mm-hmm. We're grafted onto the faithful Israel, mm-hmm. those who stay true to Christ and, and, and to, the, to the covenant that God has. Um, so much so that even in the first century, you think about this, this is just another tidbit of information. First century, uh, there's a great study done by Alan Segal, and um, who's a rabbinic, uh, he's, he was a rabbi, and also the late Michael Heiser. Together they, they did a collaboration. No, they didn't do a collaboration, but together their works uh, really make you think about what it means to be, what it meant to be Jewish at the time. So at the time, there was actually a view of Christ who... In the Old Testament, they had a bit, I'll call it a bit Bitarian view. Is that a Trinitarian? Binitarian, I guess you could say, where there was uh, God the Father, God the Son, a, uh, a relationship where there was two powers in heaven. Mm-hmm. And they saw this because of the angel of the Lord and you know, the, 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 the writer in the clouds and Daniel. And they saw that there was two. There was, there was a heavenly fatherly figure and a son figure, and they, they knew it. So when Christ came, 
Christ came to be this son, mm-hmm. right? And so it wasn't hidden to them mm-hmm. because it was already in their theology. Yeah. Come around 100 AD, Christianity spreading, the Jews at the time abandoned this Benetarian view of a father and a son. Mm-hmm. Completely abandoned because it sounds too much like Christ. Yeah. So they reject their own theology yeah. because it sounds like Christ. And then that's what they've retained ever since. Mm-hmm. And you think about this. And Alan Segal is a, it's a rabbi who's talking about that's what they used to believe in, in Second Temple period. You think about that. They abandoned their theology. So that it didn't sound like Christ. Yeah, they that, altered, they 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 had they altered it, right? And and um, there was that affected the translations that they chose to use as well, because the because the Christian language was starting to pick up right. on the language of the Septuagint and things like this. So they so it had a great um, impact on translations as well. It's just it, it's an amazing thing to see. So in terms of partial hardening, yes, there are some who rejected the Son. There are, I'm sure there are some who have not rejected the Son. Perhaps mm-hmm. they're, they don't really understand and they've only heard that Christ is, an, you know, is a false idol mm-hmm. and that they want to avoid it and that's all they know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's for God. God will judge those outside of Christianity. That's mm-hmm. his call. We know what are Christians called to do? Judge within our own camp. Mm-hmm. That's what we're called to do, just to discern, to keep, it, to keep the, the doctrine sound. Um, so in in terms of this, I'm not, I'm not trying to make the whole discussion messy, but, you know, there is a clear division I'm just trying to make between those who are faithful Israel and those who are not. Yep. And um, I think it's important that we don't blur those lines, but still understand, as we see today, Israel's a nation. Yeah. And so there's something mysterious there. Yep. It, it's a powerful thing. And perhaps God's using that as a signpost uh, and as a in his great narrative that he's weaving throughout reality. A lot of us are uncomfortable with that wait and see approach, or I'm not 100% sure there's a tension there, like right. yes and no. <laughs> but but there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, here's what we know salvation is, but there seems to be a further plan, and we don't fully know what that plan of God right. is yet. Right. I think, I, I mean, I know that's where I currently am. That's where I land right. right now. I know what salvation is and what it isn't. Salvation is through Christ alone, whether you're Jew or Gentile. At the same time, I hold intention this idea that God does not seem to be done with the physical descendants of Abraham. Right. And we're going to see. We're going to see what he does. Yeah, I, I have enough trust in the in the mercy and the, and right. the, the goodness of God that he's going to work it all and, out. And that's right, because God's also not done with everyone. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. So it's mm-hmm. like God's working, God's is has mercy on everybody. That's why mm-hmm. Christ died. So it's not just like Israel, are they still God's chosen people? They're only God's chosen people if they belong to Christ and they right, but then they can be, they can repent, they can come to that, right? So we're gonna see what happens at the end of time. Um but I think that's that. I think, I don't know. I, I think I've exhausted my resources. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. You know what? I think we're going to bow out at this point. We're going <laughs> to right. shut it down. Sure. Let us know what you think in the comments below. If you have any questions, pop them de- down there as well. And until next week, happy reading and happy studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.